Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Draft Politics, episode 19. I hereby declare that we're starting this off. And as usual, I am EJ, and with me is Steve. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, yeah, we're, we're doing things remotely this week. Uh, EJ was called away, and so he's... Uh, where, where is your uh, bunker at this point? Yeah, uh, undisclosed location, Steve. Undisclosed okay, location. Yes. Uh, but it could be sort of eastern Michigan, southeastern Michigan, uh, just south of Flint, actually, right now. So, All right. Well, I'm glad it's a secure location. Definitely so you can secure. Broadcast safely. So, yeah. Uh, so we've got a whole bunch of stuff to cover this week. Uh, lots of things happening. And we're going to go ahead and start off with a, a bit of. See, I, I want to say sad news, tragic news, because, you know, it's somebody dying, but it's David Koch. So I don't really think I can go there. Uh, how how do you think we should treat this? <laughs> uh, as factual information, David Koch, who has funded billion, put billions of dollars into, I would say, libertarian at best causes, uh, including sort of denial of the climate, lots of that good stuff, and built that uh, network of wealthy donors to fund those Tea Party candidates is no longer on this world. So the sort of dystopian uh, runaway greenhouse effect planet that he's helping to create, he won't get to enjoy himself. It's almost like he planned it that way. Almost like he planned it that way. Yes. Now, it's worth noting that uh, while he is dead, his his other brother, who does terrible things as well, is still quite alive. Uh, and also, you know, there's plenty of other rich people funding right-wing causes, uh, the scafes, etc. So, uh, this probably doesn't really fix anything. It's just it's a just thing. thing. It's just a thing. But we should all, you know, remember the things that he's done and get angry and get motivated Yes, yes. I like the line you found. Uh, focusing on his philanthropy is like focusing on Epstein's work with children. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, yeah, and if you didn't see, like, some of the obituaries were talking about his contributions to, like, the arts and New York and all that. And it's like, okay, well, he's paying for things that he would otherwise like to go to himself and basically trying to sort of whitewash his yeah. name with, with arts donations. So... Yeah, and yeah. ruining everything else at the same time. I... And ruining literally everything else. So goodbye. <laughs> you will not be missed, sir. Exactly. But let's talk about somebody who's doing better. The notorious RBG. Yes. Uh, apparently she had a tumor diagnosed it's like back in like June or July. Um, and they went ahead and treated it. It was a tumor on her pancreas. I don't know if it was pancreatic cancer again or some other cancer that just decided to move over there. She's kind of made of cancer at this point, so I really don't know. <laughs> like, I know it's not good, but I don't yeah. really know how bad uh, And she is. spoke in public yesterday, and uh, she sounded very strong, very good. I'm going to believe that no matter what. Um, that's... Whew. I... Just got about, what, another year and a half yeah. that she has to get yes, through? Yes, um, All right. Come on. Yeah. If we, if, we have to, if we have to weekend at Bernie's this, she's making another year and a half. Of course, Bernie Sanders must show up now. It's like Beetlejuice. Weekend at Bernie's, weekend at Bernie's. Right? Um, yeah. I, 
I honestly, aside from the you know sort of morbid humor here, I can't imagine what that would do to the country, because you know that the the choice would be the most trolly, you know, the tro- oh, yeah. least qualified, most trolly choice that they could they could put up, and it would be horrible. Absolutely horrible for everybody. Let let's not let's not worry about that because it's not going to happen because she's going to live forever. forever. That's what I'm saying. Like That's Mr. Burns. Yeah. The immortal RBG. Whew. Okay. <laughs> okay. Man, just starting right in on that. So let's talk about our fabulous negotiator in chief. I mean, he had a very busy yes. week manipulating the markets, didn't he? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what to make of that. Like, part of it is like his weird ego and he's like trying to fight the Chinese and he's playing that game. But then he also might be shorting the market. I mean, I don't have any evidence to prove that. No. But it just feels like it. Um, but the market's been a mess. Yeah, the market has been a mess. And it's clearly reacting to his tweets in near real time. And his father... He and his father did this all the time. Oh, yeah. So there would be news released, right? So they were shorting and, yeah. Yeah, he would threaten to take over a company. Everybody would buy into that company thinking that it was stock was going to go up, and then he'd sell his stock, and then he and, and, would, and he kept doing it until eventually nobody listened to him. Um, you know, and that's the one thing I wonder about is in the long term, if he keeps doing this, is the same thing happen, where basically eventually the markets start ignoring him, which – Having the markets ignore the president is not a good thing. <laughs> I, it, it's really not. But, you know, when you say in the long term, it has been two and a half years of this. At what point are they like, whoa, whoa, guys, wait a minute. Maybe he's not going to cut payroll taxes today. You know, he's like, I'm going to cut payroll taxes. Uh, well, I know Congress has to do that. It, it seems like things have ramped up quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, he's, he's you know, I mean, I remember when he first got elected, he was talking about, like, getting cranky about United, or not United, excuse me, getting cranky about Boeing and talking about their stock. And so then their stock went down and then it all recovered. But it was like, what what are you doing? Well, until recently. But well, yeah. yeah. He was mad at, at Boeing because he said they were charging him too much for the new Air Force One. Right. Which he then proceeded to say, I've negotiated a great deal. Yes. Hashtag negotiator in chief. And now it's what uh, half a billion dollars over budget because he keeps adding things like the gold, the gold toilets to Air Force One. Yeah, I was like, I was actually going to ask you, like, how many gold toilets do you think are now a part of Air Force Force One's interior? Uh, I mean, I don't know how many toilets uh, are on the plane in the first place, but. <laughs> At least and two. I, and I and I have to assume that, like, the toilet for the press it's just like the worst toilet ever. Like, like somehow <laughs> he hired an artist to recreate the toilet from uh, Train Spotting. If you're wow. familiar with the movie, maybe yeah. not. Yeah, but That's... but something like you know, like the, the you go to a bar, you go to a public event in like that worst nastiest toilet. Like that will be the press's toilet on Air Force One. Wow. I can't even deal with that. Hopefully, so, I'm putting way more thought into this than he is. I know. Well, um, oh, well, you know, it makes him feel good. And I know we kind of went aside yeah. there, but like, that just feels like what he's been doing this week. Um, but he didn't. He didn't. He 
I, you know, before he was manipulating the markets, and I think we should talk about all that. Um, I think he started off doing what he does best, choosing a random country and trying to piss him off. This week, Denmark. Yeah, I can't buy Greenland. Thank you. I won't come visit your country. You know, so there's a, there's all kinds of things going on here. So, like, part of me thinks he picked this fight with Denmark just so he wouldn't have to go to Denmark. Because, like, international trips, especially an international trip, and, and the, the head of uh, Denmark is a woman. So, like, I can't imagine he felt like that was going to end well for him. So maybe he's just like, ah, I'm going to pick a fight so I don't have to go. I mean, okay. I mean, that seems like a win for Denmark as well. Right. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, so there was that. Um, I know that one of the things that's part of this is that Greenland, because of climate change, a lot of the resources there are becoming easier to access. Yeah. Which, of course, given that Trump doesn't believe climate change is a thing, seems a little strange that he would have an interest on those grounds. But, you know, hey. Um so I could see like some sort of like how that might make sense from that perspective, but it's still crazy pants. <laughs> it was, I don't know. I mean, he's a real estate guy, right? So he's like, Hey, I want to buy some stuff. I haven't bought some stuff. I haven't made America big, bigger. I need to make it bigger. Greenland's a great place. The, the Trump tower Greenland. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. And you know, he, I, I think your point about resources is interesting because I think he has said some things around that this week, but, Anyway, it, it's a silly fight, right? It's a silly fight. There's no reason to air that in public. Either be be diplomatic or don't. But the idea of, like, I don't like Denmark anymore because they won't sell me part of their country. That sounds very on brand for him. So <laughs> It does. It does. You know, it was one of those. Th it's one of those things where you say, like, I can't believe. No, actually, I totally believe that. Totally. Yeah. I totally believe it. Yeah. And then some, uh, I think some, some real strange ego trip things this week. Uh, yes. All, a whole lot of layers around Israel. So, yeah. So he started off with it. He was quote tweeting somebody who was basically saying Trump is the new king of Israel. Um, <laughs> he then goes on to accuse Jews of having, uh, basically who vote for Democrats of not being loyal to the country. He seems to have the impression that if he does things that are nice for Israel in his mind, that means that all Jews are on board with it. Yeah. I like, mean, he, it's almost like he doesn't understand the way things work, but, but he says that he th <laughs> says no. things like, you know, he addresses Americans, American citizens who are also Jewish and says things like, I've done great things for your prime minister. Well, no. Well, I imagine many of them wish they had a prime minister oh, yeah, right now. Exactly. So that's not anybody, anybody not unreasonable. Justin Trudeau. You don't <laughs> like that guy. Oh, no. Sorry. We were daydreaming right? again. Um, I, I, I will say something about, you know, him retweeting that person. That is Wayne Allen Root. Right. So, OK, Wayne Allen Root is not just some random guy. He's like, you know, he's a a birther and a conspiracy theorist. And I mean, he's, he's one of the worst guys, right? He's so, so some random guy, but one of the bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, kind of well-known random, terrible person. Um, 
Right, right, right. And, you know, somebody who is always pushing the, you know, George Soros stuff. Uh, he's, you know, he blamed the Las Vegas shootings on, you know, Muslim terror. I mean, he is he is a terrible, you know, sort of xenophobic, white supremacist kind of guy. So, of course, it's the right person to that's the right right person to retweet, I suppose. Sure. Or quote tweet. I don't know the difference. I don't know the difference. And then the whole thing about not being loyal, right? I think he said, well, they're not loyal. I don't know, not loyal to whom or extremely in, uninformed. Now, of course, well, I think in 2018 it was like 75% uh, of people who identified as being of the Jewish, Jewish faith also voted for Democrats. So who's he scoring points with there? What's the political calculus, do you think? Uh, so this is the thing. We, we always try to ascribe a political calculus to him. I don't think he has one. He's, he's, you know, political, very basic math. You know, he's not quite hitting algebra. Yeah. Like, he knows how to, like, rile up people with a bunch of racist tropes. And he knows how to, I think, to be fair, he knows how to read an audience. But, like, this deeper strategy stuff is not his bag. Yeah. And I, I wonder if things like this. So, you know, you hear people, the whole loyalty argument um, is one that's been used over and over again, uh, specifically with Jewish populations, not by other Jews, but, you know, by people who are looking to oppress or, you know, separate the Jews from the rest of the, the population in a country. So, you know, again, think of all of the worst people. And part of me is like, oh, man, what a terrible dog whistle. The other part of me is like, does he know it's a dog whistle? Has he just heard other people say it and doesn't realize it's so bad? Um, does it matter? It's just a, is it a trolley, you know, just a trolley thing. It's all bad, right? It's all bad. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me to see how that was, how that was taken by the press and, and the public generally when Trump you know, did sort of an implied dual loyalty thing mm -hmm. versus Ilhan Omar doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and if you look at it, he was much more deliberately suggesting that they weren't loyal to the United States. Whereas hers was actually a, a completely like tangential thing that sounded, ended up sounding like that. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on that, but yeah, it's interesting to see how those two things were handled differently by the public and the press. Yeah, and and when in essence they are the same same kind of dog whistle. Well, any any other chances this week that he claimed he was a, a messiah or anything like that? Any of that? Well, yeah. So there was the whole <laughs> he he was doing this kind of rambling uh, talk about you know how he's he's in this place in this time to fight these fights and whatever, and he was talking about you know having to stand up to China and he turns and looks up at the sky and refers to himself as the chosen one. Now, to be fair, in context in the video, it reads as him being, you know, just being a little snarky with it. Yeah. But it still is very weird to see a president talking in those ways. Yeah, somebody had to do it. It had to be done. Somebody had to do it. And it, you know, it, it's one of those things where in the word salad that comes out, you know, sometimes you know, they come together into things like, I am the chosen one. Okay. All right, All right man. All right. Of, of, of course you are. Of course, of course you are. Sit, sit down. Sit down. Yeah. It's fine. He's also been chosen, evidently, to uh, adjust weather patterns with nuclear arms. 
right? <laughs> you know, this is like apparently this is something that actually happened a while ago, but has only recently come out. Um, so they were talking about hurricanes and hurricane season and all that. And he's like, well, why don't we just set off some nuclear weapons to stop the hurricanes when they're, you know, just forming near Africa? I mean, credit him for understanding that they form near Africa. So that's that's impressive. But uh, no, that's not how nuclear weapons work. <laughs> well, nobody knows, um, I guess, in and, fairness. Nobody actually well, knows. No, 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 no. There, that, so Noah actually has a web page dedicated to this very subject. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, because it, it comes up so regularly. Like, I mean, it's kind of just every so often somebody comes up with this theory of, hey, we could just do that. And it talks about the physics of what it would actually do to, like, how much more powerful a hurricane is than any given nuclear weapon we have. And talks about, you know, hey, if you did that, all the radioactive material would be caught in the trade winds and whatever else. And so that would be terrible, too. It's like, no, 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 no. that's just not how this works. It's not how it was ever going to work. (laughs) Okay, so what do you want to bet that that page goes down in the next month? That page disappears. You know, it's, that'd be a very interesting thing to track. I, I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tag that page. I'll go back to it every couple days. Because what has science ever done for Donald Trump? Oh, nothing. Not much. Not much. So, I mean, I think that was just kind of general, you know, the, the general craziness uh, that's been stirred up this week. Yeah, it felt like it was a... It was an extra crazy week. There was a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I was getting at. Like, it feels extra weird this week. But, uh, I mean, you know, he's always a little crazy, but it's just like the, the flavor of his crazy was extra special this last week. Yeah, and, you know, I think as we kind of said, and I think we should go back to it a little bit, is everything that's kind of happened trade war-wise as well, right? So, yes, you know, him sort of saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm looking at a payroll tax cut. No, I'm not. And then... You know, we've we had, you know, China saying, well, we are going to retaliate against your last round of tariffs with similar tariffs. And again, the amount of trade, you know, the the amount of things we push to China, much smaller amount, but, you know, certainly significant. Um, And so Donald Trump saying, I'm going to raise my I'm going to raise our tariffs and almost seeming surprised that China retaliated against his last sort of declaration. And then there was the crazy, I hereby declare that all U.S. companies should find alternatives to China, including moving them home, all caps, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, and that gets back to, and I feel like I've, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but one of the strengths that China has in this kind of fight is they do have central control in a way that we don't hear. And there are downsides to that I'm not going to get into, but um, so they could say, hey, we're not buying agricultural products from the U.S., period, and they can make that work. Whereas Trump can say, hey, businesses, stop doing business with China. And the businesses are like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's take this two ways, though, right? So one in two paths. One is that they are saying the administration is saying, well, no, wait, there's a 1977 law that says in a national emergency – We've heard that before. The president can restrict certain kinds of transactions and whatnot with countries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think he also demanded that UPS and the USPS and FedEx search packages for fentanyl. Okay. 
I think they're already doing that, man. That's how they get paid. They're all paid too little. Um, I, but they're, the administration is saying he absolutely has the right to do this based on that 1977 law. Uh, although, again, emergency, you know, national emergencies are supposed to go through Congress. Never let that stop him. And so would he build a wall to stop this? That's, I mean, if we're talking national emergencies, I have to assume that's the theory here. He's just going to build a great wall to stop China. Is that, is that his thinking? Uh, no, there is a, there is a law uh, that allows, and I should have written down the name of it, but it, it does allow for the restriction of essentially financial transactions between countries. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's all the same notion of I'm going to declare an emergency when one does not exist that I haven't created myself. Right. And and act unilaterally. <laughs> yeah. So none of that. I mean, ultimately, all of this is pretty pointless. It's causing a lot of economic friction, for lack of a better way to put it, of making everything cost more, making it harder to do trade. Um and it really doesn't, I mean, like China, for example, is going to be buying all their corn from Ukraine, which is something I had suggested in a previous podcast, like, well, that's just how it's going to work out. So now somebody who is currently buying corn from Ukraine is going to buy it from somewhere else, probably us. And the net result is it just costs China more to get their corn. It costs that other country more to get their corn. You know, it, it, it just screws up everything in a way that doesn't, it, it, it hurts all economies. Um, you know, and actually I was reading an article from uh, Nouriel Roubini, who's a uh, economist who, uh, you know, saw the kind of coming crash in 2007, 2008. And he was talking about this as like, a lot of this is setting up stagflation, like what we saw in the 70s, where it's like, you know, the economy is is having problems, but you can't rate, you can't, cut interest rates because we're also having inflation because of all the, you know, friction that's being put in the system because of these policies. And this is the Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977. Okay, well. But but here's the other thing about that, right? The, and we've said this a lot, the cognitive dissonance that must go on in the minds of people who are both libertarian, who are, you know, presumably libertarian, right? And libertarians... Tea Party folks, small government, keep government out of things. What Donald Trump is doing or attempting to do is control the means of production. Classic, you know, if you want to look at communism, that's what it is. We control everything. And so, you know, Donald Trump is by definition or should be at a disadvantage in a negotiation on trade policies with China because – they are not a democracy. They are not representative. And they are not a, uh, they have no aspects, well, maybe not none, but only a very small number of aspects of a free market economy. And I think this is something that we, you know, that progressives who are running for president should be talking about, right? They should be reminding people that as much as the president talks about you know, a Republican game. These are not Republican, you know, traditional Republican sort of aspects to the economy. But that's the point, though, right, is that 
that this is Republican at this point. Like not none of the talk of like, you know, oh, you know, we're we're fiscal conservatives and we're, you know, you know, and we're not, you know, looking to control the means of production, like all these sorts of things about, you know, sort of standard Republican policies and low taxes and building up, you know, individuals and all that. Like none of that is true. And none of it has been true for a while. And so, you know, saying that, well, you know, the, the, this, is, this is differing from what the Republican Party is supposed to stand for. It hasn't stood for that for far, far longer than anybody seems willing to admit. You're probably right. You're probably right. Just let me believe. I mean, I'm just hoping one of these things is. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. Like, I, I'm just hoping one of these things pushes people over the line, right? And they're like, actually, you know what? This is this is too far, right? Like, one of these things has got to be a bridge too far. There's there's got to be more than, you know, four people in the Republican Party who actually believed some of those things. Um, well, but here's the thing: is it it's 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 distillation, you know, to tie it into our overall theme of of booze and politics. It's distillation. It's taking the, what the Republican Party was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and they distill it down. And a, and a few of those people who believed in those values leave because they can't take it anymore. And the people who are left are just a little crazier and a little crazier. It just keeps getting worse and worse until there's a, some breaking point where there's just so few of them and there's so little voting power associated to them that they can't be that alternative party, at least for a period of time. Yeah. Part of the challenge we have, though, is we have a two-party system. So, you know, there's always the risk of, well, we'll go back to the crazy because the other guys aren't delivering fast enough. Yeah, right, right. And there's a really interesting Freakonomics on that, a podcast on duopolies, and that being the biggest duopoly there is and nobody talks about. It's really kind of fascinating. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, kind of tying into that, you know, China is able to do things, and we've we've mentioned it before, you know, China's able to, you know, create work when there needs to be work created. And so we talked a little bit about the ghost cities before, and I think you did some research on this, right, in the intervening week. Yeah, I was curious because it was something I hadn't really seen much mention of since like the 2008 recession. Um, you know, and there was lots of talk then about, you know, China spending all this money on these cities and there's nobody living there and it's crazy. And it's like, well, OK, if you go back and look now, one of those cities they built they plan for it to be a city of 500,000. It's now got 100,000 people in it. So it's not totally unoccupied, but, you know, obviously there's still a lot of room to grow there. But they built a city in the early 90s where it was the same kind of thing, where they put a bunch of buildings there and nobody was living there. And now it's actually a pretty, it's a growing financial center in China. So, you know, it, and if you think about it, it's just like a lot of that comes down to the way that China is growing yeah. and evolving it makes more sense there because you've got, you know, it's a very agrarian society. Now they're moving to more of an industrialized society. So building up a bunch of cities where somebody who will move from a farm to go be at makes a lot of sense because eventually it'll happen. Yeah. I, I, I would love to tour some of those. I've got to say, I'd love to see, I'd love to see it in person. Yeah. Like what is like what is it like in that city of five hundred thousand always a hundred thousand people in it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Does it feel like like Milwaukee on a Sunday? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just like oh, there's a lot of buildings here and there should be people, but I don't really see anybody. Okay, Milwaukee. By the way, I love Milwaukee. Don't don't read that as a me digging on Milwaukee, but Milwaukee on a Sunday, there's you know, 
you could film a nice zombie apocalypse movie there and and it would be you know you wouldn't have to even get permits it would just be there'd be nobody there but but it's a nice place i like it i, I like milwaukee as well but uh, here was the other big piece of news and this was today actually um pretty far reaching um thankfully it has nothing to do as far as i know well, I'll probably take credit, but nothing I do, nothing to do with Donald Trump, any of that. Um, it was the first big court decision in the series of lawsuits that have been filed about the opioid crisis across the country. And this was in Oklahoma, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So the state of Oklahoma filed suit against really all of all of the big pharma companies. Um, Purdue Pharma was in there everybody's favorite people um some others yeah and their name has been probably the most prominent uh, amongst all of yeah these, but, but also yeah. johnson and johnson and they have a subsidiary that was specifically named in there and johnson and johnson decided to go to trial now it's important to note that the original suit was like they asked what was it 16 billion they were looking for some number like that um the other companies settled for 350 million uh, and Johnson and Johnson said, "No, we're going to go. We're going to go to trial. We're going to see this through." And what happened today? Seems they lost a uh, total of five hundred seventy-two million dollars. Um, so that's not good for them. That's not so bad. That's probably <laughs> a week. It's a week of revenues. Well, but you know, you think about this. This is one yeah. court case in one state. So. Multiply that number times 50. <laughs> it's the precedent that is set here. Um, and I'm sure there are going to be lots of lots of lawyers who are much smarter about this sort of thing than I am. Uh, that'll that'll have some good analysis here about what this means, you know, and equating it to, say, the, the lawsuits against big tobacco before, you know, the sort of public nuisance kind of lawsuits. Um and I think we'll see it play out immediately in Ohio next. If I if I've been reading the you know cross country dockets uh, correctly, uh, the Ohio lawsuit is the next one to be decided. I was going to try to quickly figure out how much profit Johnson and Johnson made in 2018, but it's kind of a hard like I, I have to do some math to get there because they talk earnings per share. Um, but their revenue was like 20 billion. And Johnson and Johnson obviously is a much bigger company, you know, than just, you know, than just drugs. Right. So like Janssen. Yeah. They, they don't just make opioids. Yeah. So Janssen is their sort of pharma, you know, their pharma company, but you know, like you don't have opioids in your Neutrogena hair care products, Steve. So, I mean, uh, will that we did, but I don't know about yours, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I take very <laughs> long, fuzzy showers. It's, it is really, uh, it's interesting again, just from a, a, a precedent standpoint and, you know, this has been going on for a long time. Is this going to be a case of, you know, now bigger settlements in hopes of making this all go away? Um, but it would, uh, you know, for me, I don't think it's really the purview of this podcast, but I've done a lot of reading on how this has kind of come to be and the distribution of 
the drugs across the country is just insane. I mean, it's just insanity. Oh, yeah, yeah. And on one hand, I'm like, well, yeah, these guys should pay. And the other hand, I'm like, actually, I think these guys should go to jail. Like, this this doesn't seem quite right either. Like, whoever is looking yeah. at this and saying, eh, it seems perfectly reasonable to send, you know, 17, you know, 17 pills per person to a town of 5,000. Um, yeah, that seems all right. Well, I mean, but, you know, it's it's they're they're paid not to think about it like, oh, we're going to sell, you know, 10 percent more of these in this quarter than we did in the previous quarter. Great. What are those pills going to? Don't don't look too hard. <laughs> yeah. Oof. OK, can we move on from that? Because th- these are just all depressing things. Do we have anything yeah. happy to talk about? Well, you know, but, you know, I think we're doing better than we have the last couple of weeks, to Speak be honest. Speak for yourself. I mean, two weeks ago, we didn't have the chosen one. That's true. I mean, come on. That's 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 pure theater right there. Um, but we can move on to the international. We've got a bunch of stuff there, which th- now there's stuff there that will get me depressed. But, you know, we'll, we'll, true. we'll get there. It's true. I, I feel like we've got a little comedy. And then we've got a little depression. So which way, which do you want to start with? Do you want to start with the, the sadness? Uh, let's, let's, yeah, let's just do it first and then we'll, we'll move on from there. So, yeah, so the Amazon rainforest is on fire and, uh, so the, the rainforest in, in Brazil is basically about 20% of the world's oxygen supply. So losing that is kind of a problem. Now, there's no reason to think that it's all going to go away, you know, right away. But what we've seen is a major uptick in the number of fires uh, in the last year, as opposed to previous years. There's been a long habit of slash and burn uh, farming there where they, you know, they burn down the jungle and they try to turn it into, you know, farmland to raise beef cattle and things like that. Um, But it's really cranked up this year. And of course, what comes with that, in addition to losing oxygen production, is a bunch of CO2 being released in the air and, you know, not being absorbed by those trees. So it makes climate change, I don't know how much worse, but it definitely makes it worse. <laughs> well, and I think, so So this is not, you know, this is not unpredictable either, right? Because the, you know, farmers in in Brazil, we're saying we're gonna we're gonna burn the stuff. We we only care about what we can do. And well, Sarah's like, yeah, go go, man, burn it down. What do I care? You know, I'm I'm in it for the short term. Yeah, and technically it's against the law, yeah, but he doesn't no. care. I mean, and what's the law got to do do with uh or what's the law gonna do to get in the way of a lawless fascist, right? I mean, and looking at it, you know. Looking at the satellite images, they're like kind of shocking. Just can't believe it. And then seeing some of the satellites showing the plume of carbon uh, carbon monoxide coming into the air, you just if you're not moved to action by that uh, as a world leader, then then maybe your priorities are are kind of wrong, um, or maybe really wrong. Well. And I think what really kind of weighs on me in, in seeing this going on is it, it, it gets to how hard it is to deal with climate change because any given country can screw things up in such a dramatic way. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, like we like it's come up and we'll be getting to, you know, in, in our circus 2020, we'll talk about some of, you know, 
Sanders proposal on climate change and things like that. But like we could do everything right here. And if China doesn't do it right and India doesn't do it right and Brazil doesn't do it right, we're still screwed. So it's it's frustrating to see this unfolding and not having any real good way to act against it. And I think even more than that, you know, the 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 president, right, Belisero's like, look, I'm just going to I'm going to say I'm doing something. But because we're in kind of this weird quasi truth world, it doesn't really matter. I can say I'm doing it and not really do it. And what's anybody going to do about that? Yeah, I was seeing today that he was sending in the military to help deal with the fires, likely because of pressure right. from the G7, where Macron was saying he was threatening to can a a, a deal, but a trade deal between the EU and Brazil that's been like ongoing planning for quite a while now. So it would be a big thing to throw that out. And, sure, he's uh, sending them in. Yeah, I mean, so he might be sending them in. He might just be tweeting about it, right? Who knows? Or tweeting pictures from several years ago when. They were actually fought by the military. Um, but that is a really good point about the G7 because uh, that is something that we should talk about um, that just wrapped up in the lovely seaside French town of Biarritz. Um, everybody gets together, G7, seven biggest economies in the world. Why isn't it the G8? Because they kicked Russia out because Russia got a Russia. Um, but this was... One of the things, one of the topics on the table, and you know, uh, Macron is a, a big proponent proponent of focusing on climate change, and especially with the news in Brazil, he wanted climate change to be sort of front and center at the G7. And this is, I think, one of the few things that they actually got together and agreed on was, you know, trying to send some aid down to Brazil to help put out the fires and maybe some reforestation efforts. Yeah, and so you know that's good that they're send- they're you know going to be sending that money. Uh, apparently, it's chiefly going to be to fund uh, some of those aircraft they use to fight fires. We'll we'll see how much impact that really has. Um, you know, overall, like the G seven, of course, whenever Trump shows up there, it's always a little bit of a clown show. Uh, he that that session on climate change, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that session on climate change, Trump uh, decided to skip it. Yeah. Well, first he said when he was asked about it, he said, oh, well, that's happening later today. And it had just finished. And so part of me was like, did they just not tell him? Like, I could see them sitting around like Macron, Merkel, like, hey, let's just leave that off his agenda. See if he notices. You know, like watch golf highlights, 8 to 10 a.m. Like, Oh, great. I get to watch golf highlights. Everybody else is doing the, everybody else is doing the the climate change stuff, um, but he also then later he's like, well, it's, it's it doesn't matter. It's like I won't waste the great wealth under our feet, on and then I think he went on to say on dreams of windmills or something like that, um, <laughs> which is just which is just amazing. And that if you keep putting that wealth into the air, we won't have any wealth at all. So good luck with that. Not when I'm here. That's what he'd say. Not when I'm here. Well, you know, the thing that's so frustrating is like, well, it doesn't bother Trump. He's not going to be around when all of this goes to shit. Like, it's like eventually, you know, this, as this continues, it's like we're going to eventually get to a point where everybody who's got a position to like really make, you know, policy changes on it is going to be like, oh, no, this will actually affect me. It's because it'll already be affecting mm-hmm. them. And it'll probably already be too late to do much about it. 
So, well, and there was a great story that came out this week about a meeting at the White House where they were showing some economic data and talking about tariffs, and they were talking about those things, and they said, "Look, here is the point where all of this breaks down, and the hockey stick moment, you know, where the U.S. economy is going to get just wrecked." And Donald Trump looks at that and he says, "Like, yeah, but I won't be in office." And and ultimately, the next president probably won't be in office either. The one after that might be starting to run into some problems. Yeah, well, and I guess that also depends on whether or not it, it was the Donald Trump who thinks he's going to be there for eight years or 16. So, well, yeah, that's true. And and I guess, you know, there was a lot of the press. You know, one thing about the G7 is that you you get a lot of press interaction. Right. So it's not as controlled as it, as it is at the White House in the U.S., where Donald Trump is either on stage ranting or he's in very controlled situations. It has to be a little more open and upfront. And reporters were kind of pressing him on some of these things like, hey, why is it that you say, like, uh, we're raising tariffs and I'm having second thoughts, and then somebody else says, Your se- my, his second thoughts were just going up higher, and I love Kim Jong-un, and I hate him, and, you know, all of these things, and he just said, like, oh, that's how I negotiate. Deal with it. It's been very successful, and we're winning. It's been great for the country. Yeah. <sighs> about, about that. that. <laughs> I mean... You know, I mean, actually, and uh, I knew somebody who was involved in dealing with real estate and had actually been involved in a deal with Trump at one point. And uh, no, he's not a good negotiator. <laughs> it's just just not a thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a difference between gaslighting, lying and bullying with law with lawyers, which I think was pretty much his M.O. as a real estate person. I don't think you can do that as much with other countries. Well, and what he do, which is kind of similar to some of the stuff he does now, is he just crash a deal for no reason. Like, he'd be like, everybody think that they had a deal. They'd all be ready to get the deal done. He'd just be like, nope. And he'd just blow it up for no obvious reason and end up, ob- and a lot of times, getting a worse deal. But, now yeah, that's how he is. So, and, yeah. Uh, Negotiator in chief. That's right. Um, so then, uh, yeah, for the rest of our international coverage, uh, got Hong Kong. Um, it seems like it's pretty much continuing as it has been. Uh, I don't know if you had any new updates on I, I, it. I don't, but I always want to come back to it because there's a lot going on. And as long as there are people there who are kind of, uh, you know, fighting for democracy as they see it, um, I think we should keep talking about it. I think it's something that is good yeah. to, oh, for sure. you know, it's, it's good to keep in the national consciousness. And, you know, I've been to Hong Kong. I love it. Uh, the people there were great when I was there. I, I suspect they're still great people. Um, and you, plenty of good people on both sides. <laughs> they and, all turned into jerks right after you left. Right after I left. And, uh, yes. you know, you, you see what's happening. You see the Chinese government putting out their version of propaganda. So, I'm I'm always looking to put out our version to the you know 150 people who have subscribed to us <laughs> or rating us on iTunes, Stitcher, and and just exactly. try to keep this uh, keep this in in the consciousness um, and also call out great things. You know, like, and I do wonder. Yeah, go ahead. I do wonder in the context of the trade war, like how does that affect how? 
the central government in China is, is acting towards the protesters? Is that giving them more caution or is that making them more aggressive? And I don't know. It may have very little impact on kind of how they're taking it, but I do wonder about that. Yeah. And I, you know, I think from China's perspective, you know, anything that distracts from, you know, the image that they want to put out is a bad, is a bad thing. And I, I also feel like they must think that eventually information will get into mainland China. They won't be able to control it forever. So the longer it goes on, the higher the chance that these things are going to come back to haunt them in the mainland. Now, whether or not that means anything, who knows? But I will say this, the Chinese protesters have been brilliantly adaptive. You know, it went from umbrellas to umbrellas and hard hats. Now I've seen tennis rackets and badminton rackets smacking (laughs) back the tear gas canisters. And it's a little funny. It is a little funny. It's also sad that they have to do it, but also funny and also really nice forehand, man. I mean, like they're, they're knocking them back. It's a, it's a great idea. It is a great idea. All right. Well, that takes care of our international coverage. Uh, I think we should do a I, beer I mean, break at this point because I am you, out of I my beer. We, we, we should. We should do a beer break. Okay. I'm going to go top off okay. my beer and uh, I'll be back in a moment. So next up is our favorite segment here on the podcast, Circus 2020. Election Circus 2020. So looks like we got a few people dropping out this week, EJ. I have some sadness. You'll get through it, man. My t-shirt has gone up in value. That's true. It's gone from, well, how much did you pay for it? Like twenty bucks? I don't know. Probably twenty bucks and two cents. Hey man. Hey man. <laughs> Packed by Seth Bolton. I, I you know, it's it was about time. It was about yeah. time, Seth. He had n- no traction. <laughs> None. None. Yeah, honestly, uh, okay, so we're now up to four who have dropped out. So that's right. Seth Moulton, uh Jay Inslee. Uh, Eric Swalwell and John Hickenlooper uh, of the four who have dropped out. The only one that I'm actually sad about it at all is Inslee. And, and then it's really only because I liked his voice, uh, you know, for climate change there. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting to see him in a little bit more condensed debate where climate change was actually brought up, um, right. which it has largely not been so far in the debates. So, um, yeah, but you know, overall, none of them were getting any major traction, so it all sort of no. fits. No, and I'm with you. I, the The one that I'm really, you know, not happy about is is Inslee because we we did want that voice there. Although, I think the day afterwards, Bernie came in with, you know, his Green Leap Forward, Green New Deal, big big Green New Deal. I don't know, whatever he's calling that. And we're going to talk about that in a separate segment something that occurs to me we should bring up uh, that I didn't have in the notes here. Uh, one of the things that came up this week was uh, the DNC voted on where to have a climate change debate or not 
um, where they changed those rules and they they voted against it. And apparently uh, Biden's people were one of the ones pushing to not have that. Um, I, I think this is a a missed opportunity for the Democratic Party to sort of set where they stand on this and how they are distinct from Republicans. But it is what it is. I well, so I would say two things about that, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about bringing up it as well. And I, on one hand, I think it is a not a missed opportunity because what they've done is now further angered different people in the party, right? There there seemed to be no good reason not to talk about it, um, and so I, I think there are people who are more closely aligned with the party, people who are paying attention to this, not most people, you know, so most people aren't going to know about this ever. Right. And party platforms are so, you know, are so dry. They're, they're very much a, a wonky kind of insider thing. Um, I, but it was disappointing to be sure, especially because there really doesn't seem to be any risk in talking about it. If you just want to be, you know, pure political re- real politic, like we're only going to do things that help us win. Like there's very little risk to having conversations about climate change. And uh, it, it felt, it felt weird and insidery. I feel like the, there is a risk, but the risk is to those who don't really have a solid grounding in climate change, understanding the, the what has to get done and don't really have a plan for it. And so, you know, I mean, honestly, I could see it playing out a lot like the debate we see around healthcare, where it's like, you know, some people lean towards something that feels a little safer, whereas other people have a little bit bolder plan. And, um, you know, it could end up being sort of the same dynamic. But how could we not, how could there be any viable candidate that doesn't have a solid answer and understanding about climate change? And on the Democratic side, that isn't, you know, in favor of doing the things that we need to do to reduce emissions and change the way we live. All of those, all of those things, like this is not a new issue. Like Medicare for all, those kinds of topics have shifted violently in the last four years. But climate change has been has been a topic of discussion for a long time. It would it would really trouble me if we had somebody who had no yeah. opinion. I mean, I remember Yeah, I mean, I remember high school physics high school physics class where we we're talking about the greenhouse effect. You know, back you know, back before we had climate change and global warming, we had the greenhouse effect. And we're talking early 90s here. And so we've known about this and, and the risks that we have coming down the line yeah. for easily 30 years. And we still haven't really done anything meaningful about it. But, you know, we're going to get into this and we're going to do a separate session just on climate change, because unlike the we DNC, can. we can we do can. that. Because the DNC <laughs> has not rated us on iTunes. If they had, maybe we'd be maybe it'd be different. But that's right. Right. Yes, we we would cave right, to their exactly. establishment pressure. Sorry. Uh, we need to talk about the debate bubble. Who's on the bubble? Who's on the bubble? Where's the bubble? Yes. Yes. We've got uh, ten in at this point, so we're right at that cusp of 
are we doing one night of debates or two? I'm really praying for one. I'm tired of doing two nights in a row. Uh, on the bubble, though, we have Steyer, Gabbard, and Williamson. So Steyer has three of the four polls he needs to qualify. I don't know how close he is to getting that fourth. Um, Gabbard, two of four. Interestingly, she's uh, been called on to... She's a uh, uh, she's in the military reserve, so she has been called up, and so she's not been campaigning for the last couple of weeks. So that might make it hard for her to get those last two polls. And then Williamson uh, has not aligned the crystals correctly, and so she only has one of four polls. How does she have one of four polls? Uh, sorry. Is that too... Just uh, probably just timing of her announcements. I mean, I think that's why Steyer has three of four is just because, like, his name came up at just the right time when the polls were running. It was like, oh, who's that? I'm interested. I like that guy. And then, you know, he's still getting that fourth one is is a little bit of a grind for him. Yeah. I. So here's a question for you. So let's say Steyer gets the fourth of four polls. Do you have, A, 11 people on stage? Or do you have a play-in debate? Where like Yang and Steyer have to debate on one night, and the winner of that debate gets to be on stage for the second night. <laughs> I like that thought. Uh, I have a feeling, though, the answer is going to be five one night, six the next night, and that's going to be... On the one hand, I, I like that in that you'll get a more focused debate for each night. On the other hand, you're going to end up with a weird situation of, once again, like, on one stage, Harris is the radical leftist. Right. And on the other stage, you know, I mean, like, it won't make any it, sense. It won't. <laughs> and it, like, somehow it'll randomly be like, it's a uh, Bido or <laughs> Bido. That's uh, Biden and Beto combined into one person. Right. It's Beto, Biden, Yang and Klobuchar or Steyer on one night. Right. Like, oh, we're just going to do those four and everybody else the next night. You just see. Like somehow they'd align, uh, they'd align it so Biden looks at his best. Um, I don't know. I'm feeling conspiracy theory about it, but it's God. Some of these people have to drop out. Yeah, one thing that suggests that Steyer might not be uh, not might not be getting far. Uh, I was just trying to like Google and see what his actual polling numbers are looking like, and I see him as like getting like like he's not even being polled in a bunch of them, and then all the other ones is like one percent. And he's calling on the DNC to expand polling criteria for the debates. Like, no, you're not going to make it. Just just let it go. Now, one thing to keep in mind, though, when we talk about this debate bubble, it's the same qualifying for the October debate as it is for the September debate. So if they don't get it for this one, they can still end up in the next debate, just like what uh, Bullock did yeah. uh, in missing the first debate and qualifying for the second one. And maybe maybe Bullock is just planning to do every other debate at this point. Uh, that's not a bad strategy, right? You got to save yourself. You know, it's like a right. golfer not playing every tournament. I, that's right. Uh, it is really interesting to think that somebody could be in this debate and then dr and drop out, you know, or you know, kind of drop in the polls and somebody else kind of moves up. Um, well, once you're once you're in, you're in. So you'll be if you're in the September one, you'll be in the October one. Are you sure about that? Because if somebody drops out, I'm pretty out of, sure about that. Yeah, I I, I wasn't the sure same, if it the donor, they've already met the thresholds of polls and donors, so I think they're they're still in. I don't know. Yeah, so we're I, gonna find out. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. We uh, somehow I think we're gonna find out. 
<laughs> it, no, it just I thought yes. that when you that it is where you're at in the polling at the cutoff point. So, you know, if you're at four. Right. But it's like but it's the total number of qualifying polls. Right. So it's like, yeah, once fair. you get okay. one, you're, you're good. You got to just get to that. Four, it's so. good forever. The points are on the board. They don't take them off. They should take them off. Anyway, we don't need Williamson on the debate stage any longer. Right. Just, just don't need her. Don't need yeah. her. So uh, going back to my comment about Harris being the leftist yeah. on stage. Um, or not. She's, she's, it's interesting how this has unfolded over the last couple of weeks. So uh, Harris, who originally was like, oh, I'm a co-signer from uh, Sanders Medicare for All. And, you know, on the debate stage, they were asked about taking away people's uh, private health care. If she was on board with that and she raised her hand and said she was, and then she sort of walked that back. And now she's like totally moving away from yeah. Sanders Medicare for all proposal. Yeah. And pretty clearly she's read the polling on this and thinks, okay, well, I don't think that's the more popular approach. And so I'm going to go to having a Medicare buy-in because that polls better. Though, interestingly, if you actually, if you poll to say, I'm going to take away your health, your private health care, it pulls badly. But if you say, I'm going to take away your private health care, but I'm going to also give you this other government health care that also has all these other awesome extra benefits you weren't already getting, it actually pulls quite a bit better. So, yeah, you well, know, well, there's I think it's a misread on her part. But, well, you know, we'll see what happens. You could also say maybe it's a stretch, but. She may just be a little a little more centrist on it and say, I want everybody to have health care because that's to me. I think that should just be the message like like saying, like, we need to destroy the insurance industry to make sure everybody has health care. OK, maybe that's the answer. I'm not saying it's not, but it feels to me like the message should be I want everybody to have health care one way or another. Right. But I think that's that's the thing, though, is like if you look at like. Sanders proposal where it's like, okay, we're going to have a phase in period and we're going to do that. It's saying everybody gets healthcare. What, what the ones where it's a buy-in fall, none of it is saying everybody's covered. Like, yeah, okay. We're going to make it cheaper by having Medicare compete in the private market. But like, that doesn't mean that the, you know, tens of millions of people who don't have insurance right now are getting insurance. Yeah. Fair. Yep. So that's kind of its own thing. No, that's a good point. That is a good point. I, I just feel like we're we get into nuance here, on the debate stage and between the the different candidates. That is going to be lost on most people and is going to be easily spun into negative messaging about all of the candidates, whoever they are. Right. So it's all socialism. It's all it's Let, all let's socialism. Be honest. <laughs> it's like all of the people on stage want to control what our companies do in the U.S. So they could like imagine right. a leftist like. Harris gets in and the first day she hereby declares that the insurance industry can no longer do business anywhere or maybe just in Kentucky. Right. right. That'd be crazy. Socialists. <laughs> right. Clearly only a socialist would consider such things. Anyhow. <laughs> um, so yeah, the other thing Harris uh, skipped a climate change forum in favor of a donor fundra- a big donor fundraiser that she had already scheduled in Whoa, California. In fairness, there were lots of Teslas at that uh, forum or that fundraiser. Well, I heard. So, and I don't know if this quote is entirely like if, if this is for the California one or if this is some other fundraiser, but 
I found this quote of like a description of one of Kamala Harris's fundraisers, and it's amazing and how bad this is for her. <laughs> so the quote is, Teslas and Maseratis lined the street as Kamala Harris greeted guests, sipping drinks from plastic cups with her name on them, and eating cinnamon sugar donuts from Dreesen's at a fundraiser hosted by movie executive Jamie Patrikov and his wife Kelly, as the summer of Democratic fundraisers rolled on in East Hampton. So, first of all, clearly it was in East Hampton, not California. But it does not look good. I'm sure those plastic cups weren't even recyclable. You know, I'm just saying. Right? <laughs> Maybe they're industrial, industrially compostable. You never know. Ultimately, whoever is running for president is probably going to be... They're going to have to work with those kinds of donors and whatever just to have the resources to compete against Republicans and, and all of that. But in the primary, the Democratic Party... You can do this with grassroots fundraising. I think Sanders proved that last time. While he didn't win, it wasn't for lack of resources. It was for lack of time, I think, more than anything else. But um, so, you know, going out there and especially skipping a forum on climate change to go do that kind of fundraising, it's, it's a bad look. It is a bad look. I mean, and in fairness, you know, her, her thinking might have been, Look, I'm going to go to that forum. We're going to talk about the same things we should always talk about. Or maybe are we not allowed to talk about it anymore? But maybe we are, but it's going to be the same things. Or I can go raise some money. Yeah. So I'm going to go raise some money. And I, I honestly think that this could be a California problem. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, in that California Democrats seem to be while you'd expect them to be really aligned with our more progressive folks are not quite, you know, just there yeah. are those times. It's just not quite. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what do you, what do you very more pragmatic than maybe one would hope. Right. Like just, yeah, just a little bit. Well, I mean, I wouldn't use the word pragmatic because pragmatic doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. Because sometimes a more radical policy may be ultimately more pragmatic because of, you know, like, I mean, you know, we could pragmatic would be taking 100 years to work on climate change or 50 years or 30. It's like, what is the right policy for that? You know, yeah. so it's just um, it's a good something point. I got it's into a, a conversation. Yeah. Something I got in a conversation with uh, a friend of mine on Facebook about was we we're talking a little bit about the fundraising and, and they're basically making an argument that these fundraisers, people have this impression that, you know, it's trading money for influence and that these people in the, in that circuit, like they're, they're getting to talk to the candidates and that's going to, you know, give them undue influence. Um, and I think that to a large extent, that's not the case um, that, you know, somebody doing a, you know, a, a staged photo booth where they, you know, talk to the candidate for five to 10 seconds, say hi and move on. Like, are they really having influence? No. But the overall image of all of this is still focusing on this notion of like, I, as a wealthy person, can buy access to that person and yeah. be in that room whenever I want. Whereas if you're a poor person, it is, okay, if I can find the time to go to some grassroots event and work my way through the crowd, maybe I can get a selfie if I'm lucky. 
And so it's it's a very different feel for those. And and I and I think that even though I don't think those people have the influence, I think it's that they can get that access just even just being in in the same room with them yeah. at a moment's notice like that is is a little bit it's a little bit frustrating to see that somebody like Harris is sort of seems oblivious to that. I, I think frustrating, but I, again, I, I'm not super surprised about it. And I honestly think in any other year, we wouldn't be super surprised about it either. If this were 2016, maybe a little surprised, but 20, 2008, nobody would have been surprised about yeah. that. But Well, and I think also a certain amount of it is a calculation on her part that you know, the voters that are going to be most pissed off about it are ones she's not going to get any. Right, 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 right. Um, it's it's also interesting, you know, you said, you mentioned the sort of very expensive fundraiser versus the less expensive one. And, and maybe this is a crossover to the Chicago local stuff, but um, Mayor Pete was in Chicago and had a fundraiser kind of rally, more of a rally, I think, than a fundraiser in Bronzeville. Yeah, it was like a grassroots yeah. thing. It wasn't like a high-end like, fundraiser. $20 yeah. a person, 25 50 something like that. Um, what would typically be seen as very a very low-dollar one compared to the hundreds or you know thousands of dollars that other people spend on on these sorts of things. And yeah. it drew a different crowd than he was hoping, I suspect. Yes. So he had it in, in a you know predominantly black part of Chicago – and he had a predominantly white audience. I mean, predominantly, <laughs> I think, is understating the uh, homogenous yes. nature. I wasn't there. I didn't see any photos. I, I but saw some photos. I, I get a sense of They looked of it, like yeah. Denmark. Okay. So <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't want to buy Bronzeville. Did they yeah, sell no. him Greenland? That's what so I want to know. The, uh, there, a Reverend Chris Evans, who's a, a very popular, well-known reverend, uh, on the south side of Chicago, introduced uh, Buttigieg, and and he said he looked out at the crowd and he said, "Next time you can't leave your black and brown friends at home, and if you don't have some, you need to make some." And then later on in his speech, Mayor Pete said, "So if you could bring some people to the next thing that don't look like you, that would be good." Um, yeah. And this is, you know, but you know. It's interesting, though, because he's he's putting that on the people who are in attendance. But isn't that ultimately on him? Uh, yeah, that's fair. And maybe even his campaign a little bit, because we saw some people in the neighborhood who said, like, first of all, we didn't know what was going on because all of a sudden there are all these white people in our neighborhood. Not nobody's expecting all of them, um, but there were no flyers. There was no kind of, you know, reach out grassroots. And I guess they didn't announce the location until after you had bought a ticket something like that so maybe a bit of a a miss there but yeah and typically with those kinds of things i've i've you know i've gone to a couple of little fundraiser things like that and it's like it'll be like okay we're not going to tell you where it is until you have committed to it because i don't want people buying up a bunch of tickets and then being like not showing up or whatever yeah but when you were polling at zero percent with the african-american community and you're having an event in an african-american community for the love of Pete. Yes. And one of your clear weaknesses as mayor of South Bend, Indiana, was your interaction with the black community. Yeah. So there's a pattern here. You might want to work on yeah. it. I, and, and look, you cannot win. 
without the support of the African-American community across the country, For right? Sure. And when we talk about, sure. you know, we sort of, and we'll talk about polling a little bit in a bit, but like, you know, the difference between polling in Iowa and polling in the Carolinas. Yeah, it's a big difference, right? So, yeah. So uh, maybe my favorite, I, I, though, you know, that, not a great look for, for Mayor Pete down there. Although by all reports, it was a you good know, I will, event. Well, you know, I will say, I will say at least I think one of the things that's changed is that that same rally happened 20 years ago. Nobody would have thought anything of it and it wouldn't have been on the South side. Now it's on the South side and there's a recognition that something is not right. And so hopefully this evolves to the next step being of finding the ways to make it right. Yeah. So anyhow, I hope so for him. I, I mean, I, I really do like Mayor Pete. I think he he needs to really take a hard look at why he's not appealing to this key constituency. Well, and I think that's a I mean, that, but I think it's a party wide issue. I mean, I don't think I mean, all, right now, the person who's po- well, you know, we'll get into the polls here in a sec. But like the person who does the best with with the African-American community is right. Biden. Right. A, and I don't think it's because he's done any particular outreach or whatever else. So it's like, why is that true right and now? And because he was Obama's vice yeah. president, even though he might have said like, hey, what if Obama were assassinated? Oh, great. With that. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah. He, he did not have a good week. Well, he hasn't had a good week in a while. Um, yeah, it seems like a natural transition to that. So, yeah. So he speculated on. Obama being assassinated. Um, and I guess on that same that same day where he was talking about that, he wasn't sure where on campus he delivered his speech. Um, he's just not. Biden has always been a gaffe machine, but like he's a he's become an extra level of gaffe machine in his growing age. I Yeah, I mean, I couldn't I, I watched that, you know, and I read the transcript and I'm like, I. What are you saying? In what world would you use those words together? I, uh, yeah, I, I can't even. I can't even imagine. You know, when he got home that day, was he saying like well, that was a bit of a mistake, or was he? Did he not notice it, or, <laughs> or yeah, nailed, it. nailed it? <laughs> this feels like every day that I was vice president, just saying what I'm thinking. <laughs> like, right. I, I it. You know, but that was the beauty of him as a vice president is he never said anything. At least not out in public. So he's fine. Yeah. Uh, so not a great week for him. And maybe that was reflected a little bit in the polls here that have come out here <sighs> in the last couple of weeks. I mean, this week especially. Um, yeah. I mean, dead heat is what I would say. Yeah. So so Monmouth, and you know, one of the things that I'm trying to bear in mind as I watch these polls is looking at each poll in itself rather than looking across a bunch of different polls because every every poll has its own methodology and nothing's been tested very well at this point so who knows you know if Monmouth versus YouGov versus Harris X like who's going to have the best read on things but within a given poll if they're using the same methods that should give you a better sense of things it really should they should all be calibrated to themselves at least. 
Exactly. So we have a poll from Monmouth with a three-way dead heat between Sanders, Warren, and Biden. So Sanders has 20, Warren has 20, and Biden has 19. Uh, and overall, this is a well-rated poll by 538. It's an A-plus poll. Uh, and relative to their June poll, uh, Warren and Sanders are both up about the same amount, and Biden is down. So, you know, internally within their polls, and that poll was from, like, June, so it's 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 fairly consistent. Um so that's a good thing for Biden or for Warren and Sanders. Uh, we've seen a YouGov poll, uh, which is a B-rated poll, says Biden twenty-two, Sanders nineteen, Warren seventeen. So also seems to reinforce that you know growth among Sanders and Warren and uh, Biden kind of holding on, but not necess- but not able to gain any ground for sure. Right, right. It's so when we look across these, and you know we're gonna we're gonna see them roll out in greater and greater numbers. Um, I think that we, we should, we should be focused on those sort of general shifting, shifting changes. Right. And when I saw the Pew poll come out and them breaking down, you know, by sort of how people have self-identified in terms of how liberal they are, like those really kind of, hit home in terms of you know where populations inside of the democratic democratic party are shifting um and shifting in a way that i think people didn't really expect maybe especially on the very liberal side right yeah and it's interesting to me because warren is polling strongest amongst liberal voters versus sanders so she's at 35 percent. he's at 19 percent, and you would think just Politically speaking, that Sanders would be more liberal than Warren. Um, that said, when I talked to this, talked about this with people I know who are Sanders supporters, they're like, "Well, I'm not a liberal; I'm left." So I do wonder if when people are responding to this poll, who are Sanders supporters, are like, "Well, I'm not liberal; I'm left," and so they were responding differently, or maybe you know, it's very possible my friends are an outlier. I would almost guarantee my friends are not <laughs> just because, you know, I, I hang out with a nerdy political crowd. But, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, where are the bases of support for them as we go through things and as we go from, you know, 20 some odd candidates down to a hand. Yeah, well, I mean, but I think all these polls tell us as, that the thing we've known or have said for a while, there aren't 20 candidates. There Four to six. Yeah. Um, yep. There are four with two alternates, you know, waiting in the wings because, yeah. you know, for the vast majority of these folks, they're not, they're not coming back. Right. You're not going from 3% in the polls to 20% in the polls. Just not, you can go down that much. Oh yeah. You can't come up that much. Well, and I think it's like, if we were in, a different time that might be possible. I think it's like in social media and all that. Now it's like, it's too easy to have an early sense of a candidate. You know, it's not like they're going to surprise you and suddenly show up at a, at a debate and be like, wow, never seen that guy before. And he's great. Yeah. Like that's just not as much of a thing as it once was. Well, and I think beyond that, even if you see somebody new, you may have either already made your mind 
up or you don't have any mind space to consider somebody new. Well, that's the thing is you have to draw your support from somebody else. Yeah, right. It's got to come from someplace or, you know what, the coverage for those top five will tell you, hey, this person seems okay, but why hasn't anybody been talking about him for the last six months? Yeah, well, it's like Jay Inslee dropped out and he was, uh, you know, climate change is important and a lot of people think it's important. And uh, But how many people are willing to say, I'm going to make Jay Inslee my pick on that issue alone relative to all the other things that, that Sanders says, all the other things that Warren says. So you, that's who he'd be competing with, and it's just he just doesn't have enough to get there. Yeah, yeah. So do, do you think that, uh, and, you know, just generally, you know, as these polls come out for people, how much do you think in the campaigns they're looking at these and saying, actually, you know what, we're kind of screwed. We need to, hey, Tulsi, Look, I'm sorry, we're not going to make this up. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it ultimately comes down to the egos of those candidates and their resources, right? I mean, it's like, how how long do you stay in in spite of the fact that you're not getting any traction? Um, you know, so I think that after this next cut down in debates, it's going to make things a lot starker. I mean... You know, we had 20 candidates in the first couple rounds. You could make the argument to yourself that, okay, well, I'm going to get a couple good debates in and I'm going to build on that. But nobody in those sort of, you know, past that sort of top six candidates, none of them have shown any trend line other yeah. than, you know, a flat line at this point. Exactly. And, and even the best debate. I mean, Harris had the best debate she could have had in that first debate. Yeah. Couldn't sustain it. I mean, Julian Castro, who I deeply am deeply rooting for as a really solid voice in this campaign, but he had really, really good debates. Nothing. So no, because uh, it has to come from somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I, I like Castro too. I know a lot of people who like Castro, who are Warren supporters, mm-hmm. but they're not going to, but they're not going to stop being Warren supporters. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't that strong. We've already got the magnet on our car. We're not getting, we can't put another magnet back there. Yeah. Maybe it's even a sticker if you're a real supporter, but mostly magnets. So yeah, I just do laptop stickers cause I don't have a car. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, um, you know, a couple other things from the Pew poll that were interesting, Sanders' strongest base of support was amongst young voters, which I think jives pretty well with what we've seen. Biden's strongest base was 65-plus voters. And I think that's really stark. So if I look at Sanders' supporters, it's like, for, for or if I look at young voters and their support, it's 24 Sanders, 18 Warren, 7 Biden. Yeah. If I look at 65-plus voters, it's 41 for Biden. 16 for Warren and four for Sanders. That's pretty drastic. And then going back to, you know, our conversation around Buttigieg, uh, Warren has 20% amongst white voters, only 4% amongst black voters. Sanders has 9% amongst black voters and Biden has 29%. So that's, it's. Yeah. So <laughs> it's interesting because it's like, I don't know how 
how Warren and Sanders, you know, will be able to build a coalition that like broadens their base beyond the voters they have there. But, you know, maybe as Biden falls off, it'll sort of, you know, help recalculate things, assuming he does. Yeah. And I think that is going to be both a, a big question and one of Joe Biden's theories of the case. Right. You know, the big question is going to be, will that will the the African-American community come out in support of some other candidate? And Joe Biden, I think, will say no. And he'll say, you want to know why we lost in 2016? That's the reason we lost in 2016. And other candidates will say, no, we have the same message. We have the same, you know, values in heart and mind. And we will drive the agenda that is going to help every community, specifically the communities that have been ignored and, you know, in the last four years, and they'll draw this big contrast and they'll say, we'll bring these communities along and they'll, they'll support us. And Biden will say, no, they won't. And that, uh, you know, that's an unanswerable question. We'll tell you, you know, in mid November, 2020, whether or not that's worked, but it's going to be a big, I think, internal democratic debate debate next year. And a painful one at yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing to bear in mind about this is like a lot of this comes down to that notion of electability. And, you know, there's a sense that like amongst a good chunk of voters of we just got to beat Trump. We just got to beat Trump. And, and so far, Biden has drawn most of those voters. But it'll be interesting as the debates fall down to fewer and fewer candidates how much that holds true. Yeah. Will he be able to stand up and seem like the most electable candidate against them when it's only, you know, a handful of people on that stage? So the, the short answer is we don't know what's happening. We've got these polls. <laughs> we'll find out in 2020. <laughs> Stick with us. Stick right. with us, everybody, and rate us on iTunes. Yes, this is why we actually have elections, everybody, because yeah. polls don't tell you all that much. I, well, one would hope. So can we talk about the Republicans, though? Because... I hear that Bill Weld has a challenger. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's only reasonable to call it a challenger to Bill Weld at this point. But uh, yeah, Joe Walsh, uh, local Illinois favorites, if you will. <laughs> uh, I honestly don't know a lot about him. Uh, I know that he lost to Tammy Duckworth when she ran in Illinois 8. So. I know he's a radio show host, so he's probably quite irritating, but I don't really know much more about him. Well, so, you know, he was, uh, and just so you know, we're not talking about former Eagles band member Joe Walsh, because you know, it took me a while before I moved to Illinois. I heard about Joe Walsh, and I was like, the Eagles guy? Wait, what? No, but it's not the Eagles guy. <laughs> so, you know what? You can probably know everything you need to know about him. His Twitter handle is Walsh at Walsh Freedom. Um, and he was, you know, at one point a big supporter of Donald Trump uh, and then, you know, sort of flip flopped pretty quickly and has been a, you know, conservative uh, Tea Party ish radio host for a while. Um, he did lose to Tammy Duckworth. Uh, but, you know, he's kind of been going down in popularity on his show. You know, a lot of people have kind of, thought that maybe he was doing this uh, just to be a 
just to get his name back out there, right? He was only a representative for two years. Yeah. Right. So he came in in the Tea Party wave, and then he immediately waved goodbye. Uh, he grew up in Barrington, outside of Chicago. So, I, you know, he has some name recognition, though, right? So, can he do anything? I don't know. What does he want to do? Not sure. You know, nobody can think that. Yeah, this may just be more a yeah. publicity stunt yeah. than anything else. And just to remind people, he's not in the Eagles. I'm pretty sure. Right. He is not He is not the clown prince of rock. Apparently, Joe Walsh of the Eagles is also not. I actually know nothing of... I mean, I know the Eagles, but I don't really know Joe Walsh. So this is That's a okay. gap in my Everybody gets one. But I'm just not Everybody up on my Joe Walsh's. That's just really what it boils down to. It's it is a yeah. But I'm hoping you know I'm I'm hoping he gets on the debate stage. Uh, I don't know what you need. I don't know what you need to get on. Uh, yeah, I mean, fair. have good music. Wait, either one. Oh wait, or other Joe Walsh. Sorry, both. sorry. Yeah, maybe maybe we could have a uh, Joe Walsh, Bill Well, Donald Trump, <laughs> Joe Walsh debate. Well, but you you bring up a good point though. What debate stage? Because, like, the DNC sponsors debates for the Democratic primary and all that, but the RNC is not, they don't have debates scheduled. Why would they? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a built-in hindrance to anybody who's running for, you know, that seat is, you know, they may just not be able to get anything done. They may not be able to get any traction because they don't have any way to present themselves because there's no debate. So we'll see. I, it should be fun, right? Maybe some fun. Maybe there'll be some fun over there. Um, anytime somebody's going to get up there and trash Donald Trump, I got to say, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. We need another ring in the circus. <sighs> but I really want to talk about my beer because I have absolutely really, really good beer today. So, so reminder, everybody, he's on the road in Michigan. So tell us what bar did you go to today? So, I went to Lynchpin Brewery. So this is okay. in uh, this is in a town just south of Flint. Um, Lynchpin is part of a there's a bar and a restaurant and a brewery. Um, they've done some really great stuff in terms of beer and also really great great cocktails. But that's that's for my other podcast um, about cocktails, I guess. Uh, but I had. I walked in there. I know they've also done some weird things beer-wise. So I walked in there not sure what they were going to have. I ended up getting a beer called A Fellow Traveler. And much like Donald Trump's market-manipulating tweaks, you could have predicted what it was. It's a New England-style IPA, but it's really, really excellent. So uh, it's oh, like 6.5%. Um, again, I was going in there having been forewarned that they may have some you know, just interesting combinations of flavors and those things. And they had like a raspberry saison that actually looked interesting and, and a few other things. But I got this fellow traveler, New England style IPA, and it is super smooth. I, I think even you would like it. It's not overly hoppy. It doesn't sort of punch you in the teeth. Um, eminently drinkable. Uh, I've had more than one glass uh, since we started this conversation because this conversation has been so heavy. I think it's been worth it. Um, and it's it's really nice. So that's uh, that's Lynchpin Brewery in Fenton, Michigan. Lynchpin. You got to go if you're in Fenton All right. or in the surrounding area. Sounds good. 
Uh, yeah, and I'm actually local today. I'm at the Dovetail Brewery, which is the closest brewery to my abode. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about going somewhere I hadn't been before, but, you know, I figured with EJ out of town, that didn't really make sense. But anyhow, uh, so I started off my afternoon with the Dovetail Roche beer. Uh, it's got a nice kind of smokiness to it. Uh, so I had a pint of that, and then I moved on to their Pesh. Which uh, they have a series of these beers where they take a base creek, or let's see, what, how do they call it? Um, basically, they've done a series of like it's open fermented, um, where they just sort of just you know they have a big container where they you know expose it to the air. It uses the natural yeast that are in the air in Chicago, turns it into beer, and this one is then uh, mixed with peaches, and it's. It's good. It's got a nice, like, sour vibe, a little funk going on. Um, but, yeah, no, it's really good. Ah, bringing the smoke and bringing the funk. I like it. All, I like all it. of it. I just, yes. I still love the idea that, like, hey, what yeast are you going to use? I don't know, man. We're going to open up the top. We're going to see what happens. We'll just find out what shows up. Natural, right. all natural sort of, I guess that's flora there. So just right into the, right into the beer. Uh, is, is that flora? I don't know. Think of it that as things you find in your gut, and I don't really want to think of that in my beer. But so. I, I've got to say, I don't, I don't uh, doubt the guys and gals at, at Dovetail. They make some really good stuff. I, I've had one of the Roush beers before, and that was another one where I was super skeptical kind of going in. I'm like, ooh, I don't know. Do I want to? Oh, yeah. I've had a smoky beer, not here, but I've had a smoky beer that was just <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah, but it was good. Like, I, and I've said earlier, you know, in, in previous times, like Dovetail has, between Dovetail and Metropolitan, they've sold me on on some German styles that I think I would not have otherwise considered because mostly they don't give me a choice to have maybe the hoppy beers that I would normally tend to, but they really good stuff. And I, I really appreciate the work that they've they've done there. Uh, to roll those out. And I kind of wish I was having one of those Roush beers, except this fellow traveler is so tasty. Well, maybe, maybe next, next time. time, sir. All right. Well, that's it for our national podcast. Uh, tune in. Uh, we're going to be doing our local podcast, and then we're going to be taking a two-week hiatus because I'll be traveling, but we'll have some special episodes in there to keep you occupied uh, while I'm gone. But uh, that's pretty much it for us. Thanks, everybody. Take care, everybody. Stay calm. It's all going to be fine.